0: to the Dear Community Podcast. This is Katie Kessner.
1: And this is Claire Kaplan. Then, before we get started, as we always do, I want to remind our listeners that the discussions in our podcast can sometimes be very difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to care for your safety and your well-being. Reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll give you that address at the end of the podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Claire. And our guest today is Sarah, first name only for now. And Sarah, welcome to the podcast and welcome to share your healing journey and your story with our listeners. So exactly, you know, maybe we start with a couple bio sketches, where are you now? Um, How old are you? Where do you live? Just give us some general background on who you are. Hi, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Sarah.
2: I'm one of the founders of UVA Survivors. I'm currently a nanny in Virginia. Um, I'm 24 years old, and I'm headed to grad school next year.
0: Awesome. And um, did you grow up in Virginia, Sarah, or somewhere else? Yes, I grew up in Northern Virginia. Um, I attended UVA from 2016 to 2020. And I have lived here pretty much all my life. Nice. Okay. So very nice to meet you, Sarah. And welcome to the podcast. And what about your survivorship that brings you to your microphone? What happened that you would be willing to share with our listeners?
2: Yeah. In about 2017, um, I entered a very casual, more sexual slash kind of romantic relationship um, with a man that I met at a fraternity and the bars as well at UVA. Um, You know, I was not of legal drinking age, but I found my way to the bars. The relationship started off um, as very casual until my boundaries were being pushed about two months in. I said no many times one night after a party. Um, and my no was not listened to. It was sort of coerced out of me until I eventually had sex, you know, to say against my will. A couple months after that, pushing away all the violence it had to me that happened to me and thinking, you know, this this didn't really matter. That's not what I think it is. Even after my friend said, that was rape, Sarah, you know, that was rape that happened to you. I went back into his house. Um, one night I had been drinking. I knew that he had been drinking. I went in and his assumption was that we were going to have sex. I said, no, I just want to say hi to you. What's up? Hello. How are you doing? You know, I'm going to go home for the night. Um, he ended up grabbing me and trying to pull me into his bedroom. His roommates actually came out of the, their room on the opposite side of the apartment and watched while this altercation happened. And again, still screaming no, still grabbing me and trying to pull me. Um, Until I screamed, you know, I just pushed him off and I ran out the door and I ran home sobbing.
0: Sarah, before you keep going, I had, you know, I, you know, I'm so happy to meet you. And I wanted to, if you're comfortable, talk with you a little bit about what just you described happening. Only but for, I've been asked to, you know, narrate what, what could have been possibly going on in the mind of the... People who saw you and the guy. So let's just roll back because now you're, I think, describing two things that happened. One is the most recent incident where you're, you know, being grabbed and almost forced. But there was a first incident with this particular guy. And I think if we could delve into how you two communicated and what you thought and what you think he thought about your relationship at stage one. So let's do stage one is what you referenced about three minutes ago. And stage two is the second incident. Do you mind, Sarah? I think that would be really cool if you could delve into that. So to give the background on what I was entering this sexual
2: relationship with, you can imagine a group of freshman women sitting in our dorm rooms, talking about the hookups that we have with people. They pretty much are all terrible across the board, but there's this one thing that we're all trying to get rid of, and it's our virginity. And it doesn't matter with who, doesn't matter how or what. Really? You, so
0: just to, to, Because generationally, there were a lot of women listening to us older than you who are going to be like, oh, my gosh, that was my prized possession. So you're flipping the switch entirely and you're saying like, I want to get rid of this thing, this od- odorous, vehemous, venomous, horrible thing. You're like totally going from 50s to somewhere in Galactica. Can you explain? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, this
2: idea of this virginity be stuck in, you know, this virginity is stuck to you is like, oh my gosh, it's like wearing the the A, right? It's like wearing the, the letter that you still have the virgin status.
0: scarlet letter A, like uh,
2: literally. Your yes. You're
0: referencing
2: scarlet letter A. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, culturally the idea of sex is more of a thing to raise your social status, especially within the circles that I was in. Um, having a close relationship with men brought you to a higher social status especially men who were in fraternities, especially men who had power at the university, Um, a place like UVA, where power is everything, um, where that will literally make or break, you know, you getting a job or something. All of these ideas that we hold about power control were directly placed onto our bodies, almost like this price tag, or this, this, not even a price tag, this thing that we just wanted to throw away. And I felt like, as a young person i was really jumping into sex without understanding you know why i wanted to have sex or with who or how it was more of like i just have to do this thing and get rid of it was the sex ever good from that young age not really right and they, no one ever tells us that they tell you it's going to be this mind blowing life altering thing and you know especially after assault you're like uh that's not that's not at all what i imagined
1: Can I interrupt for a second? I have a question prior to arriving at college. What information or education had you received about sex or sexuality or relationships? Had you had any kind of comprehensive sex education? Uh,
2: Comprehensive? No. Uh, They definitely told us what a condom was and, you know, a diaphragm and birth control that was only at the older ages, even though in middle school, when it was abstinence only, we, were, we had peers that were pregnant at school. So it's like, what did a baby just miraculously appear in someone, which they wanted us to imagine. But you know, by the time we got to high school, the education was still, I mean, barely there. Our history teachers were supposed to give it to us in high school and that never came. And a lot of it was still, well, you need to wait to have sex with someone that you love. And that is really ignorant of the party culture and just sex in general. Like, People have sex to experiment. People have sex to find out about their sexuality. Maybe they have sex because it's fun. Maybe they have sex because, you know, there's like a million reasons, but we were only told it was for love. And no one actually ever told us what love was either, right? You know, love was abuse Um, in the movies, in the media. You give yourself, you give your whole self to a man, Um, and expect you know your life to change or you give your whole self to a man and finally you can be a complete person Um, and i know that as women young women stepping into these relationships we really felt that something about ourselves would change inherently
1: the first go round, and were there any bystanders the first go round? i mean there were the bystanders who were your friends who were all talking about losing your virginity that's one piece of it so you were kind of egging each other on to basically hook up with someone so you could lose your virginity is that so is that uh, some guests we had in the past would talk that would describe this as a sexual project, okay, that your project was to lose your virginity, basically, right, it didn't go the way you thought. So, so is that sort of what your intentions were? Or did you? Is that what you thought it was going to be? Yeah, I thought really, you
2: know, I would just lose my virginity and somehow wake up the next day and feel like, wow, I'm I'm truly a woman now or something's different. And I really was just left with this terrible feeling that something went really wrong and it wasn't my choice. Uh, years later I know it's true now. I should have listened to that gut feeling. And I think, you know, his his thought going into it. When you look at someone who is not only physically or sexually harming you but emotionally abusive, right? He was able to use things, comments about my weight, comments about my looks. Oh, I like a girl with bigger boobs. Oh, I like a girl with blonde hair. You know, I like a girl that does this and that. It put me in this constant state of, of scarcity of myself, you know, not believing that I was good enough to be a person and really fit the narrative that a lot of young women and femmes today, you know, that you have to fit the script of femininity to be able to be accepted by society. You know, him as a fraternity brother, uh, which I will talk about later, how they also continue to help him lie. You know, the culture around drinking, around power, they knew that I was someone that would get really, really really drunk, uh, that I would black out that I would you know do silly things or whatever bad things, you know crazy things, and I one hundred thousand 000- said wait Sarah,
0: i, I got, Sarah, I want to interrupt one thing because I'm playing devil's advocate when I hear your your speech your the way you just described that they knew I would be the one he said. They knew I would be the one to, it sounds like, I'll just tell you, Sarah, once upon a time, about 30 years ago, I was on a talk show and there was a plant in the audience when there were no people speaking out as victims of sexual assault. And the plant said, you are being a disservice to women because you don't own your choices. And what I just heard was almost like a reenactment of 30 years ago, Sarah, because you said they knew I would choose this, which actually absolves you of being the architect of choice. And I was hearkening back to me being in that same live television talk show, being questioned the way you phrased it probably would come under scrutiny how did they know you would be? And are you saying I had no choice? Or can you explain better? Yeah. So as someone who can,
2: especially as a younger person is outwardly weird, and maybe outwardly mentally ill, uh, my thoughts, the way I express myself is a little different than other people. I'm quite bold Um, in my speech. To me, you know, I, I obviously take you know, I have ownership over my choices, but what I would not say is a choice is is um, going so quickly into drinking. You know, there were no resources at UBA really. I was able to access a couple group therapies, um, some individual therapy, but when, especially when I talk about the choice as a as a younger person, um, especially as a freshman you have no resources, right? You don't even really have your own space to live in and be in. You don't have time to form those communities that you want, like really intentional communities. You're sort of,
1: yeah. And by resources, if I can add an ask question by, by resources, did you mean your personal resources of where you could reach out to or like the university resources, like knowing there was some program you could, there's sort of a difference there.
2: So, I luckily had one really awesome resource um, at the time as a freshman who was my RA. Um, I know that RAs are mandated reporters, which means that if you disclose a sexual assault to them, then they have to report that to the university, which usually goes through Title IX, or um, you know that can equal you know, a formal process or an informal process, or you say, you know what, I don't need help. She knew in some ways what happened to me. Because I was able to use words around saying actually out loud, I was sexually assaulted. My RA knew that there was really abysmal resources at UVA. And I'm talking about therapy, uh, medical resources, uh, because at UVA and and many universities, the therapy groups are almost completely filled by the first week of classes. That's group therapy, that's individual therapy. And there are months-long waiting lists to get a free therapist so was at a point, too, where I was not comfortable telling my parents that I had been assaulted. I was fully relying on the friends of my friend group that were also, you know, pretty mentally ill <laughs> and suffering from sexual violence. And with us, we're all sort of like trying to help each other throw something together. And there's just nothing there for us.
0: All of the friends you had were also exploring sexual violence. That's a so huge Okay, I think we could blow this up. Explain what that means. You know, when
2: when we were all coming together in our rooms and, and even just sharing casual stories of rape that happened to us, or, oh, you know, this person groped me at the bar, or this person, you know, called me a bitch, or this person pushed me down, or, you know, someone tried to stick their hands down my pants at a party. All things that I have also experienced, you know, dozens of times at UVA or pretty much at UVA was just this casual sexual violence. Um, but especially as freshmen, when you are thrown into adulthood, even though 18, I still believe is totally a child, you know, we're children trying to help children. And when we're all traumatized um, by sexual violence, by this quote, casual sexual violence, or really, really absolutely undeniably violence, violent sexual assaults, you know, when we're all trying to help each other, we end up what ended up happening is we all stopped being friends because we were all just being like crazy to each other. We had no interpersonal skills. We were all saying, well, I'm traumatized. So, you know, I can yell at you or I'm traumatized. So I can like ignore you. or I'm traumatized. So I can blah, blah, blah. Instead of actually, you know, being able to sit in community with our friends and grieve the loss of this, this part of our lives that we've had or grieve the loss of, some happiness that was taken from us we were all fighting like crazy like we were insulting each other and and just unable
0: to cope the only thing that we knew to do was say oh yeah yeah sarah let me just may, maybe i'm envisioning this which is really powerful and we've never had this on podcast i'm almost seeing a moment which is unprecedented sarah if The new batch of fabulous humans going off to UVA, identifying with a she pronoun, now sit together in a dorm room, lounge, and discuss their trauma. And the shame and bonding is trounced by whose trauma was worse, all of us climbed this brilliant rope to getting admission into one of the top schools in this country. And we all sit in sisterhood with our trauma. That's a really important part of what it means to be a powerful woman in 2022. If all the powerful women entering Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Amherst, Williams, Swarthmore, UVA, Chapel Hill, all of it. If all of us, as she pronouns, Sarah, I was just thinking about this tonight with your conversation, a nuance which is really scary, but also powerful in the same flip of a coin is part of our success comes from we triumphed over trauma to get to this place. And that is a commonality never before spoken amongst women who are going to lead the nation and the world to success. What do you think about that, Sarah?
2: You know, I really feel a lot of grief. Um, I have so much grief, so much grief around how we were not given the skills that we needed to know what is an unhealthy relationship and what is healthy. I grieve that we have to waste our academia, these these times of our lives that are supposed to be wonderful and, you know, meant for making connections, trying to figure out how to help each other. I mean, you know, I cycled through bipolar episodes so quickly that my friends could not keep track of my depression and my mania and being someone that suffered with bipolar disorder, um, being someone that suffered with psychosis and severe dissociation, you know, I wonder how I could even sit in a room with those people and speak with them.
1: And you might not have been able to. I mean, that's the thing that it's, we we assume that, that putting survivors in a group is the solution, but I can think of a number of people who would be triggered by hearing other people's stories and, and go into a, a psychotic episode. So how is that helpful? But I understand what you're getting at, Katie. The other piece, because that's important to get to a place where you can have that conversation. But I'm also thinking, of course, there's part of me going, There's no one in that group who said, maybe we should go to the women's center and see if we can get some help because nobody called me, you know, and I'm just thinking, uh, oh, you know, that there were resources, but you didn't know how to access them. And that's part of the thing.
2: And the thing is, you know, I didn't know I was a survivor that
1: at that point, the dorm that I
2: lived in, the women's center was actually in the basement. You know, I could have walked five, you know, three stories down into the women's center and found you, Claire. I didn't find you till two years later, but there was also this idea that uh, we kind of knew in a way that our trauma was sort of being surveilled, right? Like we were scared about accessing the university resources because we weren't sure what was going to come out of that. Does that mean we talked to the police? Does that mean I have to go through a title IX complaint, right? There was no education around that. Even our, you know, single green dot presentation at the beginning of the year when they throw 2000 plus freshmen into the stadium and say, you know, be a green dot, don't rape. Right. And you see the the frat boys around you laughing, like, well, I know who's going to be the rapist here, you know? And, and I think, yeah, I just, I didn't know, like, we knew that it existed, but we didn't know what the support could provide for us. And when you are so mentally unwell, you actually perceive the world in such a different way that you're unable to even access basic communication. Like, there were so many months at UVA where I can still visualize myself walking over my body, like watching myself walk around campus, voting to classes, talking to people, literally, physically, like the, it felt like I was an angel. I was so dissociated for like three months, four months, and I would still go through bouts of it, right? And I
0: walked, I literally walked in from one abusive relationship into the next, Wow, Sarah. So you just mentioned, I did not know I was a survivor. And then I was doing this. What triggered your survivorship that you finally labeled yourself as truly deserving of that name? Well, it took a really long time before I felt I was
2: deserving of it. There were so many times where I was like, you know, what? I'd be a survivor. It was like this little tiny blip of a thought. And it would kind of go away for a while. And I would crush it down inside of me that I had survived violence. And slowly, when I met some better friends, some more um, maybe friends that had also done some healing, I realized, you know, I can be comfortable without talking with talking about being a survivor. Of course, like many people, what really, really triggered me was the Kavanaugh trial. Um, I remember being a junior at that time. And my assailant lived right across the street from me. And I saw him every single day of my life at UVA. Hearing um, Dr. Christine Blaisley- Ford speak about her experience. And I was like, wow, it, it really doesn't matter how long it's been. Um, that's when I decided to report my sexual violence to Title IX. Right after I reported in December of 2018, I went on study abroad because he lived so close to me. I went to India, <laughs> um, and there were a lot of points in the travel when I didn't have access to internet. Um, I could not really read through all the forms, right? But I would say navigating Title IX as a survivor was so terribly isolating. Uh, it was so terribly confusing, and there was a point. You know, I talked to my friend who was at Georgetown, and she also reported her sexual assault. You know, at that point, she actually had a video camera evidence and it still wasn't accepted. Um, And she was like, you know what, even if I had a video camera, you know, recording this violence, you may not get justice, but you need to put it out there. You know, what I tell survivors today, you need to go report. Not really. Uh, That process was so traumatizing because his lawyer was saying all these things that made me question, like, did this actually happen? Like, did I actually get assaulted? Like she's, this woman is saying that I'm making this all up. And in one point she, this lawyer was included in my title nine, that I was a vindictive feminist <laughs> that I chose him to pick on because I was just such a feminist that I needed to find a man and accuse him of rape. I remember sitting in a plane. Uh, we were traveling from back from Southern India to Northern India and my my whole mind, I just kept imagining the plane in a a ball of flames in the bottom of this, like this desert, this like grasslands where we were flying above. And I said, you know, I just kept thinking, like, I just wish that I'm dead right now, because I made it all up. And I actually cannot figure out what is reality, and what is fake. And I eventually continued to go through the courses. And while I was on study abroad, you know, there were a few days where I did not make it to class, where I was just staring straight ahead and had this weird little smile on my face when I'm so exhausted. And like, you know, I wasn't in reality, I was fully dissociating. Luckily, you know, traveling kept me grounded. But when I would read the case, it would it would totally set me in dissociation mode again. But when when the case completed, I was actually in another part of India, and I was at a farm. Um, a really amazing farm that definitely changed the trajectory of like my future career um, in terms of ecological restoration and seeing the earth as something like, uh, anyways, I digress. Um, But when I was at this farm and I finally got the last papers, the last hearing, ignoring all of the BS that this lawyer wrote about me and just fully putting my truth. And after I gave my emotional impact statement, it came back that they found him guilty because he actually admitted to the the second assault that I talked about, the pushing, the pulling, the pushing, pulling, which also they did not allow, even though he was found guilty of it by admitting it, it wasn't allowed in because I said push versus pull. And they said, well, you said pull. No, you said push. So you don't even remember what happened to you, right? There, There was no understanding of, How trauma works in a brain, right? You know, I'm telling my investigator this story. As I'm telling the story, 15 stories of that night are coming back to me. And it's, people want to question, you know, I've had to create this own discernment in myself. Like, what's a flashback and what's my mind making something up, right? I know a flashback because my entire body freezes. I feel the spot where I was touched. I feel exactly what happened um, and the memory is so clear that I am there. I am fully there. And as I'm sure people with you know that survive trauma understand what a flashback is, you know, I can discern that in my mind, just making up the story and being able to know that what I experienced with truth, despite what the investigator said, what his lawyer said, what the verdict was, um, you know, he actually broke what the final saying was, which was a sanction. Um, That said, do not, you are not allowed to enter the university until Sarah graduates. He had a girlfriend there and I saw him quite frequently at UVA, even while I was still there, you know, at that point I was like, am I going to waste my time trying to get this person kicked off or call the police? Or I didn't even know what the violation of the sanction was because I didn't feel like going back and reading all through my documents. But he broke it. Right. Like it wasn't even something that was enforceable. And even though he was found guilty and even though he admitted to it, you know, they gave him his diploma the next day. They they literally tried to finish the case as quickly as they could because he was graduating. Um, again, you know, they kind of have to do that because you can't continue stuff after people graduate. But it was so obvious that they were just trying to get it over with. And I took that energy after I returned from my study abroad. And I was like, this is just so utterly painful and disgraceful. And I feel such an injustice that there can't just be one person like there. And all summer um, when I got back the last few weeks before classes started, I was looking all over online. I was like, how do I start an organization? Like how do I radically start an organization? Because there were other sexual assault prevention groups at UVA um, but they didn't really have an intersectional lens on why violence happened, right? You didn't really see them mentioning the patriarchy or white supremacy or the your capitalism or colonialism, right? I wanted to start something that that actually addressed, you know, why does sexual violence happen? like what is what are these power structures that allow people to get away with this stuff over and over? You know, what what is what these power structures that even when someone admits to something they're found and found guilty that they get no sanction or punishment. Right. And when I one day, you know, I get back on campus, I'm really nervous. Like I keep researching and I'm I'm doubting myself. Like, should I even start this? Like, there's no way that anything will happen from this. And I said, no, I'm going to go to library. I'm going to print out these flyers and I'm going to hand them out. And I probably had like 200 of those like little quarter sheet flyers. I gave them to everyone. I was walking past everyone, join this group, join this group. Like I put them on all the tables. And, you know, I didn't really expect anyone to come to the first meeting because I know it's such a high stakes place. Like being a survivor is, um, you know, there comes a lot of vulnerability, of course, to share that label. And seven people came, to my amazement, seven people came to this first meeting. Uh, and I told them like, I don't like, this is not like a leadership thing. I don't want to be like your leader. I want to be in community with you. You know, I'm not here to fill a resume. I'm here to figure out how we can prevent sexual violence and heal it within our communities. Like, how could we do something like reform Title IX or, you know, reform, which, you know, our transition moved into abolition. But at the time, we were just figuring out, like, what does it mean to be a survivor at UVA? What are the resources that are available? How can we support each other? And for the first, I would say probably for the first like four or five months, all we did was talk about how do we want to be in community and like how are we going to ensure that white supremacy isn't entering our spaces? How are we going to make sure that abuse isn't, you know, re entering our spaces? Like, for example, a lot of labor is really coerced out of people because like they feel like they have to, but we wanted to make the work more of like a responsibility, like a, a responsibility to those that you love. You can step away at any time if it's too much, like if this is too much for you, take a step back. Um, but those, those first meetings I, I look back on with uh, such joy because we were just sitting in my apartment or someone else's apartment. One of my organizers had like a big spreadsheet. We were creating all these diagrams and bubbles, you know, figuring out how does power intersect? What systems are we dealing with at UVA? So we've got Title IX, we've got the police, uh, we've got these mental health resources, we have this reporting system, right? Um, Who has power? And spending so much time just figuring out stuff that should be really common knowledge to students. But also something that wasn't common knowledge was this education that we were giving ourselves on you know, how are we going to be anti-carceral? How are we going to transform what criminal justice looks like, right? And there are so many survivors I met that, you know, I never saw them again. And they would just say to me, they said, Thank you, Sarah. They said, Thank you. I thought I was the only person at UVA that this happened to. And you know, I would never see them again. Sometimes I'd reach out, say hello. They would just say thank you for doing what you're doing. And like, I always said when I first started, like I just want to help one person make them feel less alone, make them feel less isolated than the school makes us feel, than the society makes us feel. And being in community with also people who were queer, people who were gender nonconforming, people who were transgender, there was not really a group, there was no group at that time where you were having such like an intersectional space of of race and gender and sexuality. And it was so empowering to see us creating something, even if it wasn't going to make some giant wave at UVA, that we could still be in community with each other and figure out what safety means to us, what being accountable uh, means to us, what is a survivor, what is being a survivor mean to us.
1: So you created this wonderful organization. We're kind of down to our last few minutes, but I'm wondering if you could talk about That, you know, you've graduated. It's been more than, you know, a couple of years now and, and the group's still around. Um, what, what do you, what would you like to see happen? It It still exist? And, you know, where are you heading?
2: Yeah. So, um, I stayed involved with UVA survivors even past my graduation. We wrote a list of demands in 2019 that was extremely comprehensive with so much data, with so many, you know, research points as a good UVA student would do. <laughs> um, and it still was never recognized by the university. Um, after that, we still continue to have meetings with Title IX that, you know, even Claire was present with. And, you know, a lot of these meetings, we were still gaslit and ignored. And, you know, oh, yeah, we will look into that. We'll totally do that. We're, we're going to get that rolling for you. You know, never happened. We had to change our our path from reforming to educating. Um, And as many abolitionists will say, as many anarchists will say, because I am an abolitionist and an anarchist, uh, you know, education is the foundational block for changing our societies. And like I said in the beginning of the conversation, you know, not knowing how to communicate with each other, not knowing what is healthy, what is unhealthy, you know, not knowing the resources that exist around us, you know, make us a very... Isolated society, um, very isolated people. And being able to educate other people about the, about, you know, what is anti carceral feminism? Why are prisons terrible? And why is our survivorship connected to the carceral system? How is our survivorship exploited to build more prisons, to put more people in prisons, right? And how we can especially use transformative justice to further um, our education and understanding of ourselves, right? Being, being a part of UVA Survivors and being one of the founding members um, and radicalizing myself politically has been so transformative for myself personally. You know, I held so many carceral beliefs that I deserved punishment for the things that I did uh, when I was in a state of survivorship. You know, when I was acting out and being chaotic, that I deserve to pay penance for the rest of my life that, you know, I was just doomed to a life of suffering and regret, and, and hating myself and the work of abolition and and transformative justice rehumanized myself as a survivor, right? Because so many people put the label on me of, Oh, that's just crazy. Sarah, Sarah's just doing crazy stuff again, you know, and I didn't, for many years, I didn't really see myself as a human being. And I think what our society does, and even as university, you're not really a human, right? You're a grade and you're a job. You're a research person. You're going to help us give your student labor to this, this, and this, right? You're not like a complicated, messy survivor. Um, You're like a robot. And with radicalizing myself, and really reflecting on how I have furthered white supremacy in my own life, how we all as, as a society further white supremacy in our own lives. You know, we're really scared of that word. We're scared. Oh, no, I'm an anti-racist. Oh, no, I have B11 in my bio. No, so how are you actively upholding white supremacy in your daily life? You know, there is the, the 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 research by Tema Okun and um, and let me see here. So there's the 15 characteristics of white supremacy by Tema Okun and Kenneth Jones. Um, A lot of these things are normal in our daily lives, like black or white thinking, perfectionism, um, worship of the written word, uh, individualism, fear of conflicting. Like we all have to be nice. You know, whiteness is politeness. And when I was undoing white supremacy in my own life, I was especially getting rid of defensiveness um, of my emotions, of defending my own emotions to myself, and defending my reactions to other people and actually being open to conflict like, you know what, Sarah, you know what, Joe, you know what, John, Sally, Susie, you know, you did this wrong thing. That's okay. We still love you, but we're going to hold you accountable so that you can make better choices for the future. And I think that really ties to how we treat uh, people who do harm instead of the carceral system, which locked. Locks people up and puts them away for a long time. You know, they go on committing harm in other communities. Just because you kick them out of your community doesn't mean they don't go do it to somebody else. Obviously, transformative justice is an extremely nuanced topic, and I would love for people to do their own research on what transformative justice means before they, you know, say they're a transformative justice practitioner or anything, which I, you know, I don't call myself that anyway. Um, I practice it. I, I try to um, with our education sessions, but um, to go back a little bit to holding these education sessions, like holding, or I would say I would call them dialogues and sort of like a dialogue on what is anti-carceral feminism or a dialogue on what is transformative justice. And the, the most amazing thing to me is seeing the gears turning in people. When we ask them questions, like what does safety mean to you or how can we create like, more safe networks at UVA? How can we get rid of this competition that is so embedded in us? And the solutions that people are coming up with are so freaking inspiring. Like, you know, stuff that I would never think of because I don't live in their own life. I'm not in their community. But having that time just to have that creativity and think outside the box of what what is right and what is wrong has been just so inspiring and I think we need so much more radical creativity in terms of coming up with solutions. Oftentimes, I mean, even us, this is our, this is our second list of demands that we're writing right now. Um, It's edited to sort of fit with the waves. We don't really care if UVA responds with their letter of, Oh, you know, we care about survivors. We're totally going to invest in this, right? BS, you know, tell us, tell us when it's done. Right. Um, if for us if- can I can I
1: interrupt for a second? Yeah. Because we're kind of out of time. But could we, ha- could we, could we have could you and we had that list of demands, I think it'd be cool to put it up on our website. Yeah. Or on the Facebook page. Yeah. If you would share it with us. Um yeah, we're gonna have to stop. But what I wanna do is is yeah, so you've done all this amazing work. Where are you headed now? What's gonna what's happening with you and what would you like? Um well you've sort of said this actually, but what would what are two things you'd like our listeners to know? You
2: know, I would, I really would urge student activists that are fighting against sexual assault on their campuses to just organize within their communities. You're not going to find legitimacy within the university system. It's going to take really too long. And the second thing I would say is for those who are survivors of trauma, um, I call on you to take that weirdness and take those Colors and voices and visions and put them towards a more just future. You know, we're not going to create abolition until we have those ideas. And I think survivors and, and people that survive trauma are some of the keys to these visions of our future. Um, and I believe that even when society has knocked you down and said you're crazy, you know, I'm like, that's a crazy good idea, <laughs> you know. So that's how I that's how I view Drama and working within transformative justice.
1: Well, thank you, Sarah, for joining us. And thank you, all of you who um, sat in and bore witness to Sarah's story tonight. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. You can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by a group of amazing volunteers. So thank you to them. And thank you listeners for being present today. And always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.
0: Thank you again, Claire. And thank you again, Sarah, for joining us and to our listeners. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Dear Katie's Survivor Stories. Um, We trust you will find your way and your path through healing, survivorship, and supporting others. Take care and good night.